Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So for many of us, when we, when we think of Christmas, uh, as it, definitely as children, it's centered around this idea of giving and receiving gifts. Uh, I know for me, Christmas was filled with uh, being around family, eating a lot of food, uh, hanging with my cousins and playing. Um, all of that was the icing on the cake. The, the cake for me was opening those gifts. Uh, the anticipation of waking up Christmas morning, ripping up, you know, those, those, those wrapped gifts and, and getting those things that you have asked for. And, and what comes along with Christmas is our love for Christmas movies. And so we celebrate Christmas with movies that, that highlight and focus on that idea of receiving these gifts. And so for me, when I, when I think of some of my favorite Christmas movies, I think of A Christmas Story. I'm sure you've all have, have watched it, and hopefully that's one of your favorite movies as as well, in it, you have the main character, Ralphie, and the hope for him for Christmas was receiving a Red Ryder carbon action 200 shot range model air rifle. <laughs> want to get that right. Ralphie would want us to get that right this morning. And so as Ralphie would, would talk about it, or, or if anybody mentioned it, a smile would come to his face. And so for Ralphie, his expectation, what he longed for for Christmas was receiving that rifle. Life for him would be better and sweeter if he received that gift. And so this morning, God's, God's word to us is a word of hope, a word of confident expectation. And I know typically this isn't a passage that you would, you would look at for Christmas. It doesn't speak of, of, of a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. It doesn't speak of Mary or Joseph. But I think as we examine Paul's letter to the Romans, we will better understand the hope of Christ's coming and what that means for us as believers. And so this morning, I want to spend some time on three points that I think we can, we can find in this passage. And these points are the purpose of Christ's coming, the praise of the Gentiles, and the power to hope. The purpose of Christ's coming, the praise of the Gentiles, and the power to hope. As we celebrate this season of Advent, we are celebrating the season of Christ's coming. This word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. And in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives a three reasons for why Christ came. Christ came to be a servant. Christ also came to confirm the promises of the Old Testament fathers. Christ came that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In Matthew verses 20 and 20, 28, it says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, what Paul is saying in this passage is that Jesus came for the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus came to fulfill the promises given to the Old Testament fathers. When we think of the Old Testament fathers, we think of Abraham. And when the Lord reveals to him that his descendants will be as the stars in the sky. It is ultimately Jesus that makes this promise a reality. It is the Gentiles, the nations, if you will, that make up Abraham's descendants. All throughout the Old Testament, we get promises of one coming to take away the sins of his people. Even as we look down into verse 12 of this passage, Paul quotes Isaiah when he promises that one will come from the root of Jesse, the one promised in the covenant made to David that would establish an eternal kingdom. But as we look into verse 9, there's something pretty remarkable that we see this morning. Paul says that Jesus came that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. Paul is proclaiming in an equal or maybe even greater way that Christ's coming wasn't only about the Jews, but about the Gentiles. So when you, when you hear this, when you read Gentiles and mercy, alarms should go off in your head. Very bright LED Christmas lights should be flashing to, to, to alert you to something that's very, uh, very important that's happening in this passage. The question you should ask is, why mercy? We see Gentiles and mercy. This isn't, this isn't a, a, something that you see um, be, being uh, promoted a whole lot in the Old Testament. Why, you know, we, we would think of this verse and we would say that Christ came that the Gentiles might glorify God for his grace. That's typically how we, we speak of salvation in terms of grace. But Paul highlights here that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. And this is because of sin. The coming of Jesus signaled that mercy had come. Sin is what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3 when we first hear of the, of the gospel. That the seed of the woman would bruise the, the seed of the serpent. The head of the serpent, sorry. From that point on, the prophecies and, and, and the proclaimed word of God all point to a child that would come, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 and 15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We celebrate Christmas because Christ came to give us mercy. And so as we think of lights, and, and I, I love Christmas lights. Growing up, we would decorate our house. You know, it'd take days to decorate our, our, our property. We had, a, we had a lot of land. I grew up in the country, and so we, we strung out a lot of lights. And so, uh, but I would just love Christmas lights. We would go to other neighborhoods and see what other people did. And in all my years of looking at Christmas lights, I haven't seen, I don't, I don't tend to see lights that say mercy. Mercy is not something that we tend to want to put up on our house. But what Paul is proclaiming to us this morning is that what Christmas is about is mercy. Christmas is about Christ coming to offer us mercy. And so as you think of decorating a house, maybe you've already decorated your house, you should get a string of lights and spell mercy and put it big and in bright lights in the front of your house. We, we don't like to, to celebrate Christmas in the, in the idea of mercy because mercy brings with it the weight that something is going wrong. There's a, there's a crime. There's a, there's a punishment that is, that is needed. There's a, there's a punishment that is that's being brought forth, and someone is seeking mercy or someone is in need of mercy. Mercy, f- reflecting upon mercy this morning means that we reflect upon the guilt that was ours but has been taken away by Christ. 
And so again, we would, we would like to reflect upon it as, as grace. We, we love to get to the grace and love and hope of the gospel, but Christmas is about mercy first and foremost. That God has decided to send Jesus to us for mercy. Because of the coming of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, we experience mercy, then grace. That baby Jesus signaled a taking away of the wrath that is between God and man, making a way for us to receive grace. In 1 Timothy 1 and 5, it declares that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Christmas highlights to us that we need a mediator. In most cases, when, 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 I, when we hear that word mediator, you should think there's something going wrong. There's a, there's, a, there's a dispute. There's a breakdown in the relationship or the, or the agreement. Christ came to deal with the bad news that there is wrath between God and man. And so Christ, Christ's coming announced mercy, that mercy gives way to grace of eternal life, and that's what's praiseworthy. That's what the Gentiles is praising God for. And that brings us to our second point, the praise of the Gentiles. When we consider the advent and the hope of Christ uh, that he brings, the praise of the Gentiles here being pinned by the hands of Paul is simply amazing. Paul wanting to submit the fact that Jesus' coming was a plan to save Gentiles uses four Old Testament references praising God, of, of praising God to highlight the reality that Jesus came to signal hope for the Gentiles. Again, this is huge. This, I, I can't stress how big of a deal this is. We know, those of us who like to study in rep, repeti- uh, repetition, we see repetition in the scriptures, we use repetition to make ourselves clear. And so when we look at this passage, Paul wants to hammer into the minds of the Romans that Jesus' coming was not uh, merely about the Jews, but also about Gentiles. We lose the weight and significance of this because we've become comfortable with our position as Christians. We, we rarely consider the nature of what it means to not be a part of God's people. We, we live in the South. Everybody here is a Christian, right? Everybody was born Christian. Everybody's been baptized. So that means we're all a part of God's family. And so what oftentimes what Paul is saying here is lost on us. But what Paul is revealing here is the truth that God's plan of salvation always included the Gentiles. To bring us back to our, to our early Sunday school days, a Gentile is anyone who is not born of the house of Israel. From Genesis 3 throughout the Bible, there's an unfolding of God's family. Through the covenants made to the fathers, we find God identifying with one nation, Israel. To be an Israelite meant that you were a part of God's family and that your lifestyle was that your lifestyle was meant to be different from that of the Gentiles. This, this notion, this idea, this practice of God's people living different than the Gentiles is even brought into the New Testament. Paul illustrates this point in 1 Thessalonians, verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 4 and 5. Uh, the, the passage that's well known for instruction in sexual purity. Paul writes that we should know how to control our bodies, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What Paul is communicating here is that if you, if you know God, you should live like it. There should be a difference in the way that you live and the way that those live who don't know God. And so when God chooses Israel as his people, he gives them laws that will cause Israel to live different. And this distinction in lifestyle is, 
is, is one of the main identifiers of the difference between God's people and those that are not God's people. This distinction that, that this is the distinction that the Bible makes in, pre, in people groups. This distinction is not to be confused with the construction of race. As we think of our, our current political and, and racial and cultural uh, climate in the U.S., there, there will be a growing number of people that would consider race a social construct designed for the purpose of subjugating one people group over and against another. And those that would claim this understand the concept of race as a tool to implement systemic injustice upon a whole group or a nation of people. Well, in the Bible, this distinction of Jews and Gentiles is not meant to subjugate Jews under Gentiles. This distinction among people in the Bible really serves to point out the plan of salvation. What Paul is em emphasizing in this, in this repetition is, is that God's faithfulness to Israel has resulted in the salvation of the world. When Jesus comes into this world, he unfolds the plan of salvation that every nation would be saved by faith in Christ's work on the cross. The distinction that was now, that, what, that was based on bloodline is now being brought to its fullest reality through the blood of Christ. And what's praiseworthy is what we see that to be a part of God's family takes faith. Those who were cut off by bloodline are, are now brought near by faith. And so we, as we think of Christ coming, you look in Matthew chapter 1, you find the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what's significant about this genealogy is you find those that have been grafted into God's family, pointing to the fact that Jesus came to save people of every tribe and of every nation. And who you find in this gene genealogy amongst others would be Ruth and Rahab. So you see, you see Ruth was a Moabite. And when you look in Deuteronomy cha uh, chapter 23 and verse 3, you find these words. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Yet we find in Matthew where Ruth the Moabite is now only, uh, she, she's been brought into the family of Christ. It's simply amazing to see those that, that were far off have, brought, have been brought near by Christ. We also find Rahab. Rahab was not born in the house of Israel, if you remember the story. She was grafted in as well. And when you study the book of Joshua, we, we find again the identifier of what it really means to be a part of the house of Israel. In the book of Joshua, you find Achan. If you remember the story, Achan kept some of the, of the devoted things, disobeying the word of God to Israel. So in Joshua, you see Rahab hid the spies and Achan, Achan hid the spoils. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Rahab hid the spies. And we see that it was the lack of faith that drove Achan's actions. So who really was a member of God's family? Achan was no doubt circumcised, born of the house of Israel, but yet we find Rahab in Jesus' lineage. Rahab grafted in by faith, Achan cut off by his lack of faith. This points to the fact that being born of the house of Israel doesn't make you an Israelite. You may be, you may be born in the house of Israel, but it takes faith, the faith in the covenant-keeping God to keep you an Israelite. You're not saved from the wrath of God because your parents brought you to church. 
You're not saved because you're a member of this church or any other church. It's faith in Christ that saves you from your sins. The praise of of the Gentiles here is is rooted in the reality of what Christ accomplished. We see in, in verse 12 that Paul gives the reason for the Gentiles' praise. It's rooted in Christ. That babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, the gift of God wrapped in human flesh, would one day have his body torn and ripped open to reveal God's love for us. As gory as that sounds, this is good news. I can think of no better way to say it than what 1 Peter 2 verse 10 says. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God. This is, this is why we rejoice in Christ's coming. The Jesus is the faithfulness of God to Israel that has now brought us near to God. Ephesians 2 verses 12 and 13 makes it clear to us in saying, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the glorious message of missions that that we proclaim throughout the world that one has come and paid for sin and that you can receive him by faith. As East Point Church supports missionaries throughout the world, this is, this is the message that they get to proclaim. Because, Christ, because of Christ, now the distinction has been removed. Now faith in Christ is the, is the evidence of belonging in the God's family. The Jerusalem, Council, the, the Jerusalem Council, in speaking on the salvation of the Gentiles, says it this way in Acts uh, chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is, this is huge. I'm telling you this is a big deal when you see Paul writing of Christ coming and the Gentiles glorifying God for mercy. If you want to know how big a deal this is, look at the book of Jonah. On Thursday nights, we've been walking through Pastor Carter's book on, on, uh, on Jonah. Jonah could not get behind the idea of God saving Israel's enemies. He just couldn't. He, he didn't like it. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to face that reality. But what Jonah failed to see, and, and sometimes what we fail to see, is that if God's going to save anybody, he's saving his enemies. That's the only category he has to deal with. If he's going to save somebody, he's going to save a sinner, someone that is railing against him. This is huge. This is huge this morning that we see what God has done in bringing salvation and mercy to the Gentiles. The mercy extended to us by Jesus' coming, his death and blood shed on the cross for us, now gives birth to the power to hope. So this leads us to our, our third point, the power to hope. Paul, in verse 13, offers up what some would call a a bit of a first benediction. Paul's prayer here is that God would fill us with hope. And so when we think of hope, we want to make a clarification on what's being said here. And when we may use the term hope, I I might say, uh, I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope the Falcons will win today. Uh, Now, you know, a smile comes to your face, and anytime someone mentions the Falcons and hope, 
you realize that that's not hope. That's, that's nowhere near what Paul is, is speaking of uh, in the text this morning. And so biblically speaking, hope is defined by a confident expectation, an anticipation of a reality. Consider Simeon in Luke chapter 2. The Bible said that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which was Jesus. He wasn't hoping, in a sense, that there's a 50-50 chance that Jesus would come. He knew it would happen, and he had a great desire to see it. That's the biblical view of hope, a confident expectation in the reality of a promise. And so you find Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32, and saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so we can, when we consider the hope we should have in this season, it is the confident expectation like that of Simeon. Paul in verse 13 points to the uh, to the Romans, that the truth of God, the truth that God is a God of hope. This should be encouraging to us this morning that as we read God's word, we see his faithfulness to his people. Our confidence in him should grow. God is a God of hope in that we see a record of how he deals with his people. We're reminded of the covenants and the promises that he made to Israel. What we see in the Old Testament is a God that is faithful to keep his word despite the continual sins of his people. And this is what makes God a God of hope. He sets out for his people continuously a reality that's not here. And he says, trust me, put your faith and hope and everything in me that I'm going to bring to pass what I've told you. When he makes covenants, when you see God making covenants and and promises in the scripture, you, you should get excited because he always keeps his word. And when it comes to God and his promises, it's, it's not if but when. And what this means for us then that we can have, we can now have joy and peace because the one that we hope in is sure to come. Our Advent reflection is one of celebrating Jesus' first entering into the earth and a joyful expectation in his second coming. Paul prays that God would, would fill the Romans with joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Believing in the gospel. This is the key. Believing that Jesus came, that we might have eternal life in him. The God of hope produces hope in us by the power of the Holy Spirit by filling us with joy and peace in the gospel. That joy and peace is based on what Jesus has done, encouraging us to wait for his second coming. And to revisit our our example of, of Ralphie in the Christmas story, what he longed for was the joy and peace of owning that Red Ryder carbon action rifle. Ralphie was determined to obtain it. He even sought to overcome those that would hinder his joy and peace. As you will remember, his his mom, his teacher, and everyone told him that famous line, you'll shoot your eye out. But that didn't stop him from believing. He knew that if he could just get his hands on that rifle, life would be sweet. Now, we look at that example and we laugh because it's a movie about Christmas and a kid receiving a gift. But oftentimes, this is the reality for many of us. Ralphie hoped in something that would not satisfy. It's, it's, a, it's a rifle. At some point, it would break down. It would cease to work. And so his hope in this rifle is something that he has to keep alive. That's a dead hope. What God has called us to is a living hope. 
a hope that keeps us alive. 1 Peter, 3, 1 Peter 1 and 3 declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope brings birth, uh, gives birth to joy and peace. In this passage, we have all the themes of the Advent season. We have love, for Christ's coming is an expression of God's love. But particularly in this verse, we have joy, peace, and hope. And when I think of this, when I think of joy and peace, I'm reminded of Joy to the World, that song penned by Isaac Watts. He wrote this, this, this uh, song based on Psalm 98. And Psalm 98 verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Have you considered the fact that Jesus is coming into the world gave Gentiles a new song that, that we would sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's a, that's, a, that's a new song for those who have come to Christ. And so what are you hopeful for this morning? What, what, are, you, what are your expectations? Are your hopes and expectations things that you have to keep alive? Or does it keep you alive? Are you hopeful for, for the coronavirus vaccine? How has your hope been affected by the, by the election? Did your candidate win? Did your candidate lose? 2020, for all of us, has been a terrible year. This year has been a, a, a trying year, and that every turn in 2020 seems to only get worse and not better. And when those things like the politics and our economy and your own personal health and well-being are shaken at the core, what it reveals is what your hope has really been in. We hear of gun sales skyrocketing because there's uncertainty. People are, people are scared. They're, they're nervous. And so we want to we shrink in and protect ourselves. While there may be many things that we hope for in this life, none of these things should be on the same level as our hope in Christ. Nothing should be greater than your expectation of Jesus' second coming. If they are, you either have too little hope in Christ or too much hope in the things of this world. For Paul's prayer is that what we can see in this text this morning, that we can confidently say that it is the will of God that we would be overflowing with hope. What we find throughout this passage is, is what God is doing for us is that those very things that we cannot do for ourselves. Paul's writing that we will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In this way, we see the Trinity acting on our, on our behalf to have a living hope. Jesus, the root of Jesse, come comes and accomplishes our hope. The God of hope fills us, and the Holy Spirit keeps us overflowing with hope. So the question becomes this morning, are you hopeful? Is, is this your reality? In God, we have the power and the sustaining ability to always have hope. But the truth of the matter is, oftentimes we're not experiencing this hope. Are we distracted by the false hopes of this world as Ralphie in a Christmas story, in a season when we are reminded of Jesus' coming to bring us hope, many of us walk around as if there is no hope. And regardless of whatever reason for not having hope this morning, they really all boil down to the fact that we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. He is the object of our confident expectation. When we allow anything to take us off of Jesus, we begin to lose hope. And so we must have hope in the truth that God has promised 
and what he has sent his son to do to remove our sins. And because he has done that, we, we can trust his word to bring us into eternity with him. And so what should we hope in now? Christ has come once. He's promised to come again. What is our hope? I want to leave you with three. There are many of them we, could, we can examine in the text, but I want to leave you with three. As we look at Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 20, after giving what we know as the Great Commission, Jesus promises his presence with us in saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We can confidently expect that Jesus will be with us through life's trials. Because of this promise, Jesus is with us now. Jesus, the one who defeated death, is now with us as we face a deadly virus. That should bring confidence to our hearts that Christ will, will act on our behalf. But also consider John 14, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is the promise of Christ's second coming. If Jesus came once and that resulted into the salvation of his people, we can certainly count on his coming again to bring all of us who have faith into eternity with him. The work of salvation is finished. Now we get to proclaim his second coming to the world and urge men and women to trust in Christ. And finally, consider Revelation 21 and verse 4, where it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We long to see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And to see Jesus is to praise Jesus. This is the hope that we have in Christ, that even in a year like this, where we've lost our loved ones, we have not lost our Savior. This is the joy that we have. 2020 has, has taken a lot. It's taken money, health, loved ones, celebrities, sports, schools, you name it, it's all been affected, but nothing can separate us from the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We mourn, yes, but we do not mourn as the world does. Our confident expectation doesn't mean that you're checked out from reality. It means that you're tuned in to the greater reality, that what we see now is not all that there is. There is a God of hope in heaven, and one day we will see him and look upon his face. And 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13 encourages us in saying, We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so in thinking of Isaac Watts' song, Joy to the World, I, I love the verse that says, No longer let sin and sorrows grow. Why? Because he has come to make his blessings flow. How far will his blessings flow? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, as far as, as far as the curse is found. We don't have to turn to sin, and sorrow doesn't have to be our food this Christmas. Sin tells you that what you have now is the best you're ever going to have, so enjoy it. But hope in Christ says there is yet something greater. Eternity with Christ. Wait on the salvation of the Lord. This is the joy that can't be quenched by a bad year or, or a global pandemic. And so again, we ask the question, do you have hope this morning? Do you need hope this morning? What are you longing for? What are you expecting? Trust in Jesus. Run to Jesus. He has come and paid for your sins. We, have a, we can have great anticipation in what Christ has done because Jesus gave his best for us when we offered our worst to him. 
He gave us hope when we didn't, we didn't even know we needed hope. Romans 5 and verse 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so if Christ would do that for us, when we had no desire for him, we can have hope and that he will keep his word to us. Jesus came once, accomplishing, accomplishing salvation for us, and he's coming yet again to exp- and that we, we, we would experience the fullness of his salvation. Amen. Let's pray.